Well, if I was formal, I'd say it is joy to be here, but I'm just pumped to be here, okay? I am thankful for this college. I have nine students that are from our church that go here to the college. I'm taking them all out to lunch right after this to In-N-Out Burger. You're all free to come, but I'm only paying for them. (laughs) There is no college on this planet I love more, including the one that I graduated from, which I will not tell you which one, Biola, uh, it was. <laughs> so I've repented, it's okay. It's pretty exciting in the Mueller home right now because uh, baby number two, grandbaby number two, grandson number two, is in the process of going through that birth canal, and uh, it is, uh, it happens. <laughs> We've got, uh, my son's name is Matthew John Mueller. Matthew because he's a Mueller, and this is the truth, John, because I wanted him to know if I died, I'd want him to be like John MacArthur. My first grandson is named Riker John Mueller. My son called me up and he said, I did the same, Dad. I'd want him to be like John MacArthur. So we have a deep, deep affection for John and the family, and uh, I know you do as well. And uh, we're very excited about having another grandson. Uh, We raised boys. It was an incredible challenge and an amazing joy. I think that if I had to raise girls, uh, she'd still be in the closet at 35. Uh, I don't know if I could do it, but I was reminded about how incredible it is to raise sons Uh, by a woman in Houston, and she wrote an article called What I Learned From My Boys. The subtitle was Honest and No Kidding, and it was published in the paper. I want to give you a couple of the highlights. What she learned from raising boys. Number one, a king-size waterbed holds enough water to fill a 2,000-square-foot house four inches deep. That's what she learned. She learned that ceiling fans can hit baseballs a long, hard way. She learned that double-pane glass windows will not stop a baseball hit by a ceiling fan. (laughs) She said, when you hear the toilet flush, followed by the words, "Uh uh-oh, it's already too late. (laughs) Uh, No matter how much jello you put in the swimming pool, you still can't walk on water. She learned brake fluid and Clorox mixed together make smoke and lots of it. Uh, She learned that the spin cycle on the washing machine does not make earthworms dizzy. She did learn, though, she says next, it will, however, make cats dizzy. (laughs) And then she writes, uh, she writes, cats throw up twice their body weight when dizzy. Uh, She concludes the article with this funny statement. 80% of the men who read this article will try to mix Clorox and brake fluid. (laughs) I think that's no longer the need for discipline. It's also the need, the desperate need for self-control. I remember vividly one of those parenting moments you don't forget. I was talking to my son, Matthew, after he had crossed an attitudinal line as a teenager. And I said, Matt, if you would just discipline yourself, 
I wouldn't have to. And honestly, it was almost as if I could visually see a light bulb above his head because he repeated back to me almost in bewilderment, if I discipline myself, you won't have to. You know, I mean, he, he got it. And it pointed to the reality of a needed quality in all of our lives. With this quality, you're filled with the Spirit. Without it, you're in the flesh. With this quality, you're in God's will. Without it, you're out of his will. With it, you're as industrious as an ant. Without it, you're as lazy as a sluggard. And with it, you're like Jesus Christ. And without it, you're unsaved. What is that quality? It is self-control or self-mastery. The final and probably least favorite of the fruit of the Spirit. The Puritans called it the disciplined life. The Bible calls it self-control. What is it? Self-control or self-mastery is that quality enabling an individual to sacrifice immediate pleasures to secure ultimate purposes. Uh, John MacArthur says it's the restraining of passions and appetites. It is the governing of one's desires. It is the ability to avoid excesses and stay within reasonable bounds. Simply, it is the control of oneself. Now turn there or look at your outline, and many of you have that still. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28. Listen to this very descriptive proverb. It says, like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. In ancient times, the wall of a city was its security, its main defense. Without them, they were easy prey to enemies. Godly Nehemiah, you know him, a Jewish captive in faraway city of Susa, the news of the walls of Jerusalem were broken down. It signified the ultimate destruction of his beloved city. When he heard the news, he sat down and wept. Self-control is the believer's wall of defense against the sinful desires that wage war against us. You see, self-control affects every aspect of our lives. It affects our habits, our, our tongue, our speech, our moods, our emotional outbursts, how long we play video games, how dirty we let our dorm room get, how we use our time, even what we think about. So even as we're about to open up God's word over this character, where is your greatest battle with self-control? Where are the cracks in the wall of your defense that needs immediate spiritual repair? This morning, allow the Spirit of God to bring one area, not multiple, one area to mind as we examine God's Word, allowing our loving God to work on your heart to, to basically capture and change your mind and then to move your will so that you would be in line with His Word. And remember, as I talk over this, as Nathan, as John, we all have affirmed that this is not describing humanistic self-effort. Today is not a self-help seminar. There's, the focus here is, is not humanistic. The focus of humanistic self-effort is on self, not God. It is the worship of self, not the worship of God. It is an effort for self-advancement, not living for the glory of God. The fruit of the Spirit is Christ through you. 
It is radically empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit for God's glory. Self-control is a divine fruit. Humanistic self-effort never satisfied. You can go to the gym and try to make yourself look like Hugh Jackman or Halle Berry, but you'll still be ugly inside. You'll be empty and dissatisfied. I'll never forget one of the richest men who lived in America. His name was J.D. Rockefeller. In his last interview before he died, he was asked some very basic questions. But then the reporter said this, if you could have anything in the world, in his last interview, J.D. Rockefeller, what would you want? Without hesitation, he said, if I could have anything in the world, I think I would want just a little bit more money. You can have it all and be empty. If it's for self, it will never satisfy. Humanistic self-effort is a cheap satanic imitation. True biblical self-control is something that is completely different. So if it's not self-effort, then what is it? Well, it is that quality which frees a Christian to live unhindered for the glory of God. It is that part of the life of the Spirit that gives the Christian the victory over his flesh or hers. It is that element of the Christian walk that brings our lives in line with the Word of God. It is the quality that allows the believer to triumph over his weaknesses through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So if it's that kind of quality, it comes from God, it is for his glory, then why is it a problem? Why is this missing in Christianity? Point number one in your outline, the problem. Why do Christians exercise little biblical discipline over their lives? Well, there are a lot of reasons. We live in a complacent, pleasure-seeking society. We live in an instant society where we all want it now. We're not willing to wait or to work. We've lost our desire to fight the battle of the flesh. It's easier to live like a slugger than an ant. There are a lot of reasons. I think there's one main reason, and this will prove out in multiple passages, not just this one, but turn to Revelation chapter 2, if you would, or look at your outline, Revelation 2, toward the end of your Bible. There are some descriptions of churches, and he speaks to the Ephesian church, a church filled with knowledge, a church filled with truth a church that had doctrinal integrity. In Revelation 2, verses 4 and 5, it says they lost their first love. And in the description here, it is something that is possible for the believer. He says, but I have this against you, verse 4, that you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent... And do the deeds that you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now, let me illustrate this practically. When I was first engaged to be married to Jean Sharp, one hunk of Christian femininity, an amazing godly woman, I actually heard about her before I ever met her. People spoke of her in reverential tones. I thought my curiosity was piqued. Well, when she finally said yes, 
uh, and she would come over, I found myself cleaning the bathroom, uh, wiping the counter, organizing my toiletries. I found myself stop drinking out of the bowl after I was done with my cereal. It's, it's kind of a male right, you know? <clears throat> I stopped burping out loud. Why did I do that? I wanted her to realize what an incredible husband she was going to get. <clears throat> and I did it because I love her. I was willing to do anything for her. Uh, go to any lengths to please her. That's your first love. The reason why Christians stop exercising self-control, and there's an element, and we've already understood this in our study of the fruit of the Spirit. It's obviously of God. It's obviously independence of God, but your will is engaged. There are choices that you have to make. It's not that you... I'm going to obey. You have to step out in obedience. And the reason why that sometimes we're not willing to do those choices anymore is we've lost Christ in the midst of our Christianity. We've lost our first love to do anything for him. He's not our first affection. Think back when you were first saved. Were you more willing to do whatever Christ wanted you to do as a baby Christian than now as an older Christian, then you losing or have lost your first love. You've replaced a love relationship with Christ with the routine religion of Christianity. Now look back at uh, Revelation chapter two, verse five, he says, remember, remember where you were. Remember where you've fallen. Remember what you used to do and repent. Turn from your sin as a choice in your mind and then engage your will to go the other direction and do the deeds. Return, repent, remember, return. Do the deeds you did at first. It is because of our complacency toward the one who gave us his life that we don't make those choices and engage our wills and exercise self-control. Again, it's dependent obedience. We're relying on him, but we still make choices. There's still a discipline. But if it's all that important, then number two, what's the priority? What's the priority? What's so important about self-control? Well, letter A, self-control is a priority because it's the will of God. And if you would, turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at the usages of self-control in the New Testament. 2 Peter chapter 1, after telling the reader he has everything he needs in order to live a godly life, for life and godliness in Christ, Peter lists the qualities that will be present in the life of a born-again Christian. He says in verse 5, Now for this very reason, Applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. In your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, Christian love. For if these qualities are yours and are what? Increasing. They will render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the will of God. 
that you would manifest self-control in your life, not only because it's part of the fruit of the Spirit, it is a necessary quality. It is evidence of your salvation. Meaning if any time you don't exercise self-control over something or someone, something or someone controls you apart from the Spirit of God and the Word of God, you're not in God's will. It could be anything. A circumstance, a habit, a person, a relationship, an addiction, a game, a sport, an emotion, a speech, a thought, a desire, anything that controls you, it instantly tosses you out of God's will if it is not God's word, the spirit of God. I have a friend who has an unusual habit. Every time he eats a bowl of ice cream, he leaves a spoonful of ice cream at the bottom of the bowl. And having witnessed this several times, I said, what's the problem? Why are you leaving ice cream? You're wasting ice cream. Why are you doing it? And he looked at me with all sincerity. He says, I want to make sure that I am controlling the ice cream and the ice cream is not controlling me. <laughs> God's will... God's will is to have nothing control the Christian except for the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Self-control is a priority because it's God's will. Letter B, self-control is a priority because it's our witness. It's our witness. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 through 27, and there in your outline, and listen to Paul as he uses the athletic competition as an illustration for the Christian life. And he says this, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize, only one. Run in such a way that you may win. And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable bereaf, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. The broad context here is the issue of liberty. But the immediate context of the passage, especially verses 22 and 23, look at it, is evangelism. And he says in verse 22, I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And I do all things for the sake of the gospel that I might become a fellow partaker of it. In order to be an effective witness, we need to be different. And if you want to be different, just exercise self-control in all things like an athlete, for we live in a world that lacks self-control. And I find it very interesting here, I hope you do as well, that he's speaking about freedoms, rights. He's not talking about sin, non-sin. He's talking about those areas in between that we have the freedom to enjoy. And Paul is basically saying, just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. Just because you have this freedom does not mean you should exercise it. Athletes give up freedoms to win the race. Christians give up freedoms to win the race. In fact, 
It's such a contrast to our world that 2 Timothy 3 confirms in the last days our world will be without self-control. It's one of the descriptions of the final days. People are enslaved today to their passions and appetites and desires, and if you want to be a witness for Christ, demonstrate that you can rise above that by the power of the Spirit. It is part of the witness that we have in the context here of 1 Corinthians chapter 9 to be a light to a dying world. So it's a priority because it's our witness and it's the will of God and let her see it's our worship. That's our passage that we're working our way through. Galatians chapter five, verse 22 and 23. But the fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and what? Self-control. Against such things there is no law. Even unbelievers do not resist these character qualities. There's no law against these qualities. God makes no law against self-control or love. So how do we honor him, love Christ, glorify him? Well, when we're filled with the Spirit, that fruit includes being self-controlled. Now this is interesting as you look at Christ there were manifestations of this to some degree where you see him praying, remove this cup from me, but not what I will, but what you will. Christ's greatest act of self-control is he was tortured by his creation and then nailed to a cross, experiencing the full wrath of God for our eternal sin, where we would suffer for eternity upon himself, and yet he remained. He could have called angels, 10,000, but he remained. His entire incarnation was a demonstration of self-control. Not once did Christ ever say or do anything displeasing to his Father. So why is self-control a priority? Because it's his will, it's our witness, and our worship. Well, if it's so important, then how do we make it a part of our lives? Number three in your outline, the process. The process. If it's so important to God, what are the steps? Well, the first step, letter A, is, is since I'm trying to make these all W's, it's, it's a watchfulness. A watchfulness. Self-control, the fruit of the Spirit, it requires a watchfulness. It means keeping our eyes on Christ. It requires us to focus our attention on Jesus Christ. It requires a daily dependence on Christ. Self-mastery is, is not a formula. It's a relationship lifestyle. It's, it's not merely an action. It's an attitude. Not merely an external, but it's, it's an internal. The Bible says, and John quoted it in his first sermon with us, 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed in that same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. How do we grow and change? Part of that is by looking at and studying the Word and conversing with Christ and keeping our eyes on Him and daily depending on Him, moment by moment, keeping our hand in His, in a sense, in that sense of humility and reliance. And what that means is a continual commitment to the basics of the Christian faith. You don't just automatically turn on self-control. It's something that comes out of a relationship of intimacy and dependence. It comes out of the walking with the Spirit. It's not something that is, in a sense, just an instant. It comes out of that discipline. 
After winning the Heisman Trophy a long time ago, there was a man named Herschel Walker, and he was interviewed by Sports Illustrated. In the article, he was asked, as a college football player, he was incredibly strong, incredibly fast, and his response as to how he became so fast and strong was remarkable. It took up most of the article. Before he was in junior high, he went to his, who would be his high school football coach, and he said in his innocence, how could I be a strong, great football player? And almost as a joke, the coach replied and said, son, if you want to be great, then every day do more and more sit-ups than you did the previous day. Do more push-ups than you did the previous day. Do more sprints that you did the previous day. And Herschel Walker took him at his word. Every day, it was more and more and more, and he gave himself to those basics, and he became the Heisman Trophy winner. Christian, the only way that you'll learn to biblically master yourself is to give yourself to the basics, the means of grace, the study of God's word, prayer, dependence on the spirit, fellowship in Christ, personal Bible study, confession of sin, walking by faith, abiding in the word, the basics. These are the basics. The question is, do you do them? How watchful are you over your relationship with Christ? You say, Chris, I got Bible classes every day. But are you in a relationship with Christ? Have you lost your first love, even at Masters? Have you become a knowledge junkie where you hear but not do? Without relationship, without intimacy, without knowing Christ. It was George Mueller, no relation, who said, the foremost duty of every Christian is to have his soul satisfied in his God. I've been um, listening to Joel Beakey this week. He shared something profound about the Puritans. He said the number one sermon of the Puritans, the one they preached more than any other, the passage they went to more than any other, it was so large, it, it, it just sticks out. They preached more sermons on John 17, 3, than any other verse of the Bible. What is it? This is eternal life, that they may know God, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Isn't it profound? We need to know him, walk with him. Self-control comes out of that intimacy, that relationship, that, that, that fundamental commitment to the means of grace. Letter B, the next step to develop self-control requires a declaration of war. Remember, you're not living the flesh, but the fruit of the Spirit. There's a contrast here, and since the lack of self-control is a sign of the last times, it requires a fight, a struggle, a war against the current tide of today's society. There will be nothing in this world that encourages biblical self-control. The development of this quality 
will not come naturally. How did Paul describe the, the war to develop this character quality, this manifestation of the Spirit? He buffeted his body. That's not buffet his body. <laughs> buffeted his body. He beat his body. He made it his slave. He suffered hardship as a good soldier. He, he ran his race to win. He fought the good fight. He exercised self-control in all things. Wow. Fighting for self-control is often like swimming at the beach with your friends. You go in the water with your friends and an hour later you're five lifeguard stations down, right? You been there? You didn't even realize you were five lifeguard stations down because you were just with your friend and you didn't realize there's a riptide slowly drifting you farther and farther away from where you're supposed to be. Why didn't you notice? Because you got your friends around you. You know, if we live our Christian life like that, we're in trouble. You compare yourself to others, you don't realize how far you've drifted from God's will and God's word. Many believers float along with a whole company of Christians, and as a result, they, they look seeing, <laughs> they, they stop seeing how far they've drifted from Christ. We call those average Christians. Average Christians measure themselves against other Christians. You're to be a normal Christian. And a normal Christian compares himself or herself to Jesus Christ as declared and described in the word of God. To fight the flesh, to war against the tide of society, you've got to stop being an average Christian thinking that you're doing fine in the Christian life because you're not as bad as some you know or a little bit better than others. You won't see the battle until you begin to compare yourself to the word. You can't justify yourself. When a fellow Christian struggles in one area, that's never an excuse for you to justify yourself. God has called us to swim against the tide of this fallen world. By keeping our eyes only on Christ, following only his word, recognizing Christ is the only example and model for the believer. Sure, there are others who help us, but there's an intentional pursuit. And not only does the process of self-control demand this watchful focus and a war against worldly society, but let us see, it requires work. It requires work. If self-control is to be an increasing quality in your life, 2 Peter 1.8 says it must, then the question is, who does the work? Again, asking the question, is it let go or let God, or is it God helps those who help themselves? And neither of those are true. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 hold the answer. You know it well. It says, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not only my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your salvation. Work at your salvation with fear and trembling. And then, for it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Human responsibility, divine sovereignty, is it God or is it you? What's the answer? Yes. 100% God. And, and it would never happen if it wasn't him and the spirit of God. But it is also you engaging your will. 
Verse 13 says, God is work enabling you to exercise self-control so much so that without Christ you can do nothing. You cannot please him in your own strength. And yet, verse 12, you're to put out 100% in agonizing effort to bring it to pass. A walk in the Spirit requires you being filled with the Spirit moment by moment through dependent obedience. You rely dependently, humbly, yielding every thought, every action, and attitude to Christ as you willfully, decisively, intentionally step out in obedience. Let me tell you how this worked. I got saved at 18. I was convicted that I needed to spend time with God in the morning, and though this is a moderation of the exact process that I put into place, I I would set my alarm, and I would say, I'm going to get up, and I'm gonna spend time with him. And my alarm would go off, and I'd turn my alarm off and get 30 minutes extra sleep. So I moved my alarm across the room, and I let it go off, I got up, and I got up and prayed, and the next day I got up, and I turned my alarm off and went back to bed. So I set it for 40 minutes earlier, and I got another alarm, and I put one next to me, and I put one across the room, and I got up and kind of messed around and tried to find the other one, and finally I was frustrated enough and remembered that I really wanted to spend time with the Lord, and so then I spent time with the Lord. And then eventually I'd find where I put the alarm. I'd turn it off, go back to bed. Anybody with me on this? So then I put the alarm in the bathroom, Wrote in toothpaste, Jesus loves me. <laughs> and then, you know, there was a, a morning where I got up and he, he loved me, but I went back to sleep. <laughs> so I put all the curses of Revelation on in the mirror. And Second Timothy 4, 7, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. It's a war, and you fight for it, and you know what you should do, and so you order your circumstances so that you do what is right. And you do so in dependence upon the Spirit of God, but you exercise your will. Self-control is a watchfulness, a warring, and a work. Let's see how it works out in the particulars. Number four, the particulars. As you're praying like mad, you're studying, you're memorizing the scripture, you're confessing no sin, you're having incredible fellowship here at the college and with, with mentors and fellow students, how do you develop self-control in needed areas? How do I tie up the loose ends of my life, as Peter talks about? Tuck it all in so it doesn't get in the way. How, how can I see Christ be manifested in spirit-empowered self-control? Well, letter A, your body. Your body. This is convicting. I believe most of us, uh, for most of us, a chocolate sundae has more control over us than the Spirit of God. And for most of us, Christians are not mastered by drugs or liquor or wine or cigarettes, but with a food. Let me mention two, just because they're so convicting. Chocolate. Okay, it's now time to repent. How about this? Coffee. Oh, you mean Christian cocktail, (laughs) liquid life, cup of drugs. 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not 
be mastered by what? What? Anything. It could be a food, it could be too much sleep, it could be video games. Let nothing control you, nothing, except for the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Nothing. Doesn't mean we can't enjoy the things that God gives us in life. Just make sure you're not under their control. Your desires, emotions, passions, expectations. You know, animals are controlled by instinct. Man is controlled by emotion, but the Christian is to be controlled by truth. And this is a major problem for collegians. Sexual temptation is all around you. It's in the movie screen. It finds its way into the privacy via your computer and phone. It's a full court press assaulting you. And what does God say for you to be filled with the Spirit, to memorize the Scripture on lust, and then flee? Flee means to run in terror. It says 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee immorality. 2 Timothy 2.22, now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. How do you flee? How do you run in terror? Please understand, this is some help, I hope. Not a sense of legalism, but a sense of how to run, how to flee. There are certain sins that you are to run from. And lust would be one. So number one, flee by preparing for situations. In relationships, in guy-girl situations, flee by preparing for situations like Joseph, who knew as Potiphar's wife continually pursued him, he knew that she tried to make him compromise. Collegians, you must decide in advance how you will respond in situations of temptation. You need to decide now before you face it. Fleeing means knowing in advance what you will do before in a tempting situation. Options you will pursue. Number two, flee by planning your environment. Don't place yourself in an environment where temptation is easy. You know that. It's, everybody knows it. Don't think before you go to the beach at night to watch the submarine races, you know? Uh, <laughs> you're a little slow today. Um, <laughs> rethink spending time alone in the dark uh, at night with someone of the opposite sex. Stay public is fleeing. Look what he says in Romans 13 and 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for what? The flesh in regard to its lust. Make no provision means don't expose yourself to sexual sin or provide your flesh with an opportunity to lust. Flee by picking your people. Be careful. Pick the people you spend time with. Don't go out with a flirt. You know, in the Bible, the only person who flirts is a harlot. 1 Corinthians 15, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. Witness to the lost, don't go out on a date with them. Avoid the Christian with the reputation of compromise. Remember, not everybody who claims to be a Christian is a Christian, and not everybody at that moment is filled with the Spirit. Number four, flee by pondering your appearance. Ask an older woman to critique your, the modesty of your clothes. The style of your clothing could place you in a 
Interesting compromise. Number five, flee by pouncing on your thoughts. One of the most encouraging helps to me is to consider my thoughts a conversation with God, that he's a part of that conversation on every level. Consider your thoughts and understand that work at thinking about that which cultivates purity. Don't allow your mind to drift into lust-provoking thoughts. Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, let your mind, what? Dwell on these things. Don't allow your mind to fantasize. Think about Christ. Curb your thoughts is fleeing. Number six, flee by paralyzing your glances. Fleeing impurity includes guarding your gaze. Job 31.1 even said it so practically, I have made a covenant with my eyes. I promised with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Gaze there is the long look. You flee from sin when we refuse to take that long second look at someone. Don't expose your eyes to anything that may provoke lustful thoughts. Letter C, another area that needs self-control is your tongue. James 1.26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart. This man's religion is worthless. A young man spoke to his mentor and he said, I've sinned by telling slanderous things about someone. What should I do? And this older, wiser man said, what I want you to do in this little community, this little village, I want you to put a feather on everybody's doorstep. So he did just that, and, and then the young man came back to his mentor and says, what do I do now? He said, go back and pick up the feathers. The young man replied, well, that's impossible. By now the wind has blown them all over town. And he said, so has your slanderous words become impossible to retrieve. Our speech needs spirit control. Would you agree? This is probably the most convicting for me. Those who are are gifted to preach and teach and talk. And the tongue is the last to be mastered, but it desperately needs guarding. You know, just because in our day, talk radio can say whatever they want, and because the media can ruin anybody's life they want verbally, that does not mean that God is pleased with what we say. In the past, I've had serious dialogue with elders and elders' wives and godly leaders about their tongues because nothing destroys life like unguarded speech. Nothing destroys people more than unguarded speech. What you say, even in small groups, is not harmless. Remember that phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me? That's a lie. Bones will heal stronger, but unwise words can destroy lives. Pray about what you say. Memorize scripture. Ask the Lord to help you to guard your mouth. Psalm 141, verse 3, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Maybe you need to own Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool, if he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's consounded, counted prudent. They're going to think you're smarter if you just be quiet. Talk less. Listen more. We have one mouth and two ears for a reason. How about letter D, your material goods? 
Albert Schweitzer once said, if there's anything that you own that you cannot give away, you don't own it, it owns you. And having a lot or a little is not the issue. Now, I'm sure you're different. When I was in college, I used to think that anybody who had a nicer car than I did was very unspiritual. <laughs> and I had a 72 exploding Pinto, which means everybody had a better car than I did. <laughs> and then I met some wealthy people. I read the scripture. And I saw some people who were extremely wealthy and extremely generous and giving. And I thought, i got to rethink this. First Timothy 6.17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good and to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share. You understand that biblically, to some degree, everyone in this room is rich, biblically. You have a roof over your head, you have clothes to wear, you have food to eat. That was wealthy. And you need to understand that it's not whether you have a lot or a little, it's how you hold what you have. Do you hold it with a closed fist or an open hand? We need to exercise self-control. We need to be good stewards of our things, but we also need to make sure that none of those things control us. Students, as you develop a walk in the Spirit, you will manifest the fruit of the Spirit, which includes self-control. Are you exercising self-control, dependence upon him, and yet stepping out in obedience to the Word of God? How fast you drive will be affected by this. How you use your time, how you spend your money, how you invest your leisure time, how you organize your room. Is there a place for everything and everything in its place? How much you play video games, computer games, the movies you watch, the thoughts you're allowed to go through your mind, and a hundred other areas the Spirit of God desires to control for the glory of God. To bring you greater joy, to bring you into greater intimacy, to free you up from those things that would slow you down in your race, in your walk. Respond to what the Spirit of God brought up at the beginning part of this. Pursue by the Spirit through the Word of God to depend and obey. And be warned that if there is no desire for self-control, if there is no manifestation of self-control, it only means two things. One, you're not his child. You've not come to repentance. You've not come to submit your life to Jesus Christ. You're not indwelt by the Spirit of God, so you can't do this. Or number two, you're right now not depending on the Spirit of God and functioning according to the Word of God. Let's be those who are unique for his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time. We pray, our God, that you would be honored and glorified, that if there are those here who do not know you, you'd begin that work of quickening their heart and awakening them to the reality so that they would cry out for mercy and they would turn their lives to you. And Father, for the rest of us, that we would then walk in dependence and we would see you manifested in the way that we talk with others and the way that we manage our lives and manage our time and deal with relationships and speak what we look at, all those elements that would be transformed 
if there truly was the manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit. And Father, we want this all to glorify you. You are worthy of it all. And we want you to delight and we want to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to worship you. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.